I'd like for you to turn to two passages of Scripture, and I'll quote from a third one. I want you to turn to Matthew 12 and Mark 3. Matthew 12 and Mark 3. And I will also quote from a verse in 1 John chapter 5. The message tonight is continuing in the fatal series, fatal things. You know, we started with fatal departure, fatal decisions, and then fatal attitudes, fatal talk. And tonight I want to talk about fatal accusation, fatal accusations. There is one accusation that is so fatal that the sentence is unforgiveness and eternal damnation. Anything that has that kind of a force behind it, it is necessary for us to learn what it is so that we always avoid it. In my Christian life, I've heard many stories about the kinds of sins that are not forgivable and various ways that that's interpreted, as we'll get to it in a minute. But whatever the sin is and whatever condition that you can get yourself into that you cannot get yourself out of is as serious as I can say it. I mean, when you talk about eternity hanging in the balance of something you say, you need to really be careful in light of the last three meetings. You need to really be careful of what you say. Even in anger with somebody, it's thou fool. Remember Jesus said, you're in danger of hellfire because he said something a Christian should never say. I think the Greek word thou fool is like saying you empty-headed idiot. It's really a demeaning thing about a human being, and a Christian should never say that. Now, that's largely disregarded by a lot of people who excuse themselves and say, well, I didn't mean that. But it's nevertheless something a lot of folks say. You stay in Matthew 12 and Mark 3. I want to go to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 16. If any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. That's serious. There is a sin, multitudes of sins that people commit that can be prayed for when true repentance is involved, and they can be forgiven. But there is a sin unto death. Does your Bible say that? Let me, let me see if it says it again. At the latter part of verse 16, there is a sin unto death. Now that means there is a sin that is fatal. Let's see what it is. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 12 and Mark chapter 3. Now I'm going to switch back and forth. You might want to find both of these passages. They're talking about a lot of the same things, but I'm going to switch back and forth between the two of them. Matthew chapter 12 in verse 22, then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him. Now, let me stop and get off the subject matter for just a moment and take opportunity here about deliverance and demons and healing. The situation before Jesus was a man that could not speak. It wasn't a genetic flaw. It wasn't just an unfortunate happening or some kind of a birth defect. This was the work of a demon. Do you see that? It says it was a demon behind this. 
just like the little boy in another place in Matthew had epilepsy and Jesus cast out a spirit and the boy was normal. There was a man that Jesus touched his tongue once and he was healed because behind everything that Jesus came against was the work of the devil. In this case, in verse 22 again, he was possessed under the control of a demon. There's only one devil, and agents of the devil are called demons, demoniae. And he was blind and dumb, and when Jesus dealt with the devil, he was healed. Insomuch that the blind and the dumb both spake and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. And Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself shall not stand, including ours or spiritual ones. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? And if I, by Beelzebub, cast out demons, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is coming to you. Or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except first he bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house, showing a conflict between two people here, or two agents. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Now, there was a fatal accusation made here, and go to Mark chapter 3. Fatal accusation made against Jesus. And the accusation was so serious that Mark's account of it in verse 29 of Mark chapter 3 but he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness. Does your Bible say that? Hath never forgiveness. Whatever it means to blaspheme against the Holy Ghost. Verse 28 says, All sins shall be forgiven unto the Son of Man, and blasphemies whithersoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost shall never have forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation because they said of Jesus, he has an unclean spirit. They attributed to the devil the works of Jesus. Now, in Matthew's account and Mark's account, both accounts began with a healing, that is, with a problem. In Matthew's account, as we just read, it was a man that had a spirit. In Mark's account, in verse... One, there was a man that had a withered hand. And in Mark's account, they all sat around and wondered what he would do about this hand because they had been hearing about this Jesus, all of his wonders and powers that have been wrought through him. They were wondering, what would he do with this? The Bible said in Mark 3, in verse 3, and he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, stand forth, stand up. And the man stood up. Everybody knew this man had a physical problem. And Jesus knew the thoughts of these people. This is the Sabbath day. You're not supposed to do that on the Sabbath. Jesus said, stand up. So he stood up and he said, is it lawful to do good 
on the Lord's day or the Sabbath day or to do evil? Is it lawful to heal or to help? What is the words he used? He said, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they held their peace. Nobody wanted to answer that. So Jesus looked upon them. Does your Bible call with anger? At these religious people who were so ingrained to man's way and their little kingdom ideas about themselves and the way they think it ought to be and their gross misinterpretation of the Old Testament or the scriptures, Jesus looked upon these people. He tuned them in in Matthew 23. Remember he said, you brood of vipers, all these woes against these folks. He looked upon them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, and he said unto the man, stretch forth your hand. And all he did was stretch his hand out. And when he stretched his hand out in obedience to the word of God, his hand was made whole. Now, here was the problem that these folks had. If this man can actually do all of this, and we've never seen any other person ever in our life that could do this. We read about it in the scriptures. We know the prophets didn't miraculous things and miracles took place but these were all prophets of God and they manifested God's power when they did that now here's somebody that's doing more and better than them but we don't want this to be the real deal we don't want him to be Messiah or we don't want him to be some great one because we disagree with his methods we disagree with the way he does things we don't want him to be right but we can't deny that all these people in Jerusalem are clamoring after him, and he does amazing things. We've never seen it done. We can't figure out how he's doing it. I mean, they're bringing to him any condition. It did not matter what came to him. Whether they were lunatic, as the Bible uses the word, lunatic or grossly ill, about to die, or even dead. It didn't matter what it was. It did not matter. The Bible said he healed them all. He didn't have to try. He didn't have to breathe harder or faster to make it work. Sometimes he sighed in his spirit. But all he had to do was issue a command, either a spoken word like he did with a withered hand or he could touch them or he could just, whatever he had to do, just walk by them. They got healed. Now, it appears to me that only God can do this. And if this is going on and the vessel speaks of God, honors God and glorifies God, then you best listen to what he's got to say because he must be of God. I want you to turn to John chapter 10 because they'd never seen a man like this. This was the carpenter's son. Wasn't he the carpenter Joseph's boy? I mean, we watched the little fellow grow up. He didn't do this. He didn't, as some books write, as his daddy was a carpenter, and they say Jesus learned the trade. I don't know what he did as a boy. It doesn't say that much about it. But they say, you know, stories, he whittled little wooden birds, and he'd throw them up in the air, and they'd fly away. No, he didn't. Because his first miracle was at a wedding. Cain of Galilee in John chapter 2 and he turned the water into wine and later he walked on the water. It was the strangest human being the world ever saw. He didn't eat much. He didn't sleep much. He prayed all the time. 
He could stop funerals. He regarded no man as somebody who should be, you know, bowed to. He had respect for no man's person. He spoke only what his father told him to speak. He didn't hold back any words. He never tried to be popular. He was aloof, alone, hard to find. In his greatest crowd and great miracles, he'd say, don't tell anybody what happened here. Don't tell them I did this. And he couldn't get away from people. He went into a house in Mark 3, and he got into the house, and the people wouldn't even let him eat. They were just thronged outside. And the folks said, his friends said, he's mad. They said, he is mad. Mark 3 ends with his mother standing outside, and he's still in the house, and he's preaching, and they said, your mother and your brethren are outside. They want to go. Remember Jesus said at the end of Mark 3, who's my mother, who's my brothers? But those who do the will of God. And we would think, well, that was rude. No, it wasn't rude. He didn't come to be what everybody today would want him to be. He was who he was. And he was displaying to us the kind of a person that God wants us to be. He lived the life that we should live, a kind of life that we can live. He loved the way we should love. He had faith the way we should have faith because he gave us his faith. He gave us his love. He gave us his power. He gave us his promises. He said, the works that I do, what? Shall you do also? Look in John chapter 10 and verse 19 concerning these works. Now, before I get to the unpardonable sin or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, how important, let me ask you a question. Think about it for a minute. How important were miracles, or he called them works, things he did, how important were they in his life? Did they have meaning? In other words, was there a purpose beyond just making people feel better? Was there a purpose in why he made people feel better? Of course, he loved them and all that, but was there a bigger picture? Who says he's the son of God? Based on what? He's a carpenter's boy. Now all of a sudden they say, who is this? Never a man spoke like this guy. When did all of this begin? What's happened here? Even in his own hometown, remember in Mark chapter 6, they couldn't receive from him. They couldn't get it out of their mind. That way we saw him in the beginning is the way he still is. That's happened to some of you young folks. Little Bobby, little Jane, one day you grew up and God was moving in your life, but you're still little Bobby and little Jane. It's hard for people who know you best to receive from you. Sometimes people don't realize that God takes ordinary human beings like you folks and gets you still while you're young and lets you learn things and lets you evaluate things and look at things and be quiet and just watch and ponder or meditate. What's going on here? Why does that work like that? Why didn't this happen? Why aren't they? And listen. And when you read the word, something captures your attention, and that's a signal from the Spirit of God to investigate this. God wants to show you something. He wants to tell you something. So you look, and you begin to see things, and you wonder what that means. And lo and behold, a week later in a message, God verifies how you saw it, and it's quickening you, and you're being quiet. Now, one day, God's going to use you. 
This is a time of preparation. It's like going to school. Nobody's sitting in a classroom anywhere is teaching anybody, but one day when you graduate, you will. But there's a time of learning until you get to where you're ready. Not only your mental game and how you handle yourself, your anger, your emotions, money, passions, and all, until you prove yourself. But when you do and you've been paying attention and you've been a good student to Jesus and you've been watching and learning and asking questions and seeking, then one day he raises you up. Now, it's true. Folks in your hometown or in your home church might have a little trouble taking you real serious. But there's one thing that can't be denied. Power. When God introduces his power to somebody through you, I don't care how old you are or whose child you are, where you came from, there's something there that everybody says, this is God. Please come to church every week because when God moves upon you, somebody gets healed. Please come. Please be here. Please don't be absent because you've got something. I don't care whose little girl or little boy you were. Jesus was one time somebody's little boy and grew up in a little community like a boy did. He grew in wisdom and stature. He learned things. And one day it was time. The fullness of time came and bam, he steps on the scene and he was anointed. That's what he said in Isaiah. For the Lord has anointed me to preach and to do. How do you know he has? You can say that. You can quote all that stuff you want to. How did anybody in his day know that Jesus was anointed? He said he was, but then did not God verify that? Listen to these words. If you found John 10, verse 19, there was a division therefore among the Jews for these sayings. And many of them said, he hath a devil and is mad. Why are you listening to him? Why did they say that? Now listen to me. Why did they say that? Of course their hearts were hard. They said that because they did not want him to be who he was. They would have to change their ways. They would have to repent of their hardness, and they would have to yield to him. And they didn't want to do that, so they were trying to tell the people, we're right, he's wrong. That guy's got a demon. He's crazy or mad. And this was the answer. Verse 21, others said, these are not the words of him that hath a demon. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? Is the devil the author of blindness? Well, would he heal a blind eye? That would make him divided against himself. The thief comes to kill and to steal and destroy. His work is to hurt, maim, kill, put down, make miserable. Jesus came along to set these captives free. There's not a soul in this room that was not or may not yet be bound in some way in your life. Mentally, physically, emotionally, a lot of other ways, hasty, acting without thinking, fly off the handle easy, out of control. That's a bondage that the devil has brought into your life and it still messes up your testimony. And you hate yourself for doing it, but you do it anyway. You need deliverance. And the one who delivers you is the one whom God sent to set the captives free. The deliverer's name is Jesus. 
Well, Jesus came to heal the sick. He didn't come to make people sick, did he? How many times do folks tell you in other places, well, I don't believe God wants to heal everybody. I think sometimes God makes people sick for his glory. Well, then he's divided. He's a healer. He's not a sick maker. The devil makes people sick. Jesus comes to heal the sick. You can't put on him that it's better for you to be less than what he brought for you to be. Just like poverty. Well, I think the devil gives people some money sometimes. I think the devil makes people, he blesses people. So, no, let me, no. The, the thief comes to kill and to steal and destroy. He doesn't turn around and do it another way. It's God who gives you the power to get well. Then why do some of these heathen get well? Because at some point in their life, they hardened their hearts and turned against God, and their wealth has come to them, as he said in 2 Thessalonians 2. Y'all remember what he said in 2 Thessalonians 2? That God will send strong delusion. You think you're all right because, look, I'm successful. I've got money. And how deceitful that message is to somebody who thinks he doesn't need God because he's got that. But these people are already turned off. Do you think God can harden somebody's heart? Do you? Did Romans 9 say, whom he will, he hardeneth? He shows mercy on whom he will, and whom he wills, he hardens. And if a man is a difficult rejecter of Christ, all God has to do is just, that's it. The shade is pulled, there's a blindness over your eyes and you begin to walk away from God and never miss it and you go into the world and you act all the way the world dies and one day you die a bad death and everybody wonders what happened to you. You turn from God. Jesus came to set you free. It's the devil who's trying to kill you. It's God who blesses people. It's the devil who curses people. And Jesus made the distinction here. He said, you say, I have a demon, he said. If I, by the spirit of the devil, am casting out other devils, then we got a war in the house. What if two demons got into it with each other and one big devil said, you come out of him, a little devil said, I ain't coming out of him, I don't have to. You can't tell me what to do. Well, the poor soul that was in, I don't know what they would do. The works that he did testified that the power that came forth through Jesus was indeed the power of God. He was a genuine article. In fact, going on with this a little bit further, turn to the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, and let's look at verses 1 and 2 in the Gospel of John. Everybody knows Nicodemus, knows that he was a good man. Nicodemus came to Jesus in the middle of the night. He didn't want anybody to see him talking to Jesus because he was one everybody in the upper echelons hated and despised and the poor loved him. And in 3.1 it said, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. In verse 2, The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except what? God be with him. Now was God with Jesus? It was obvious. And even people like Nicodemus, who knew it was obvious, 
many of them relished their reputation and their position in the Pharisaical community more than they did his approval or relationship with him. And they were afraid of the Jews, so they turned from Jesus. And you'd keep turning. You keep turning. Eventually, you'll harden your heart. And then God, all he has to do is just flip the switch and it's over. You're done. You'll live your life. I mean, you go ahead and live and breathe. But you'll never have a tender moment the rest of your life about Jesus Christ. Never be another moment of conviction in your life. You won't struggle anymore. You won't care anymore. There's nothing, there's not a worse judgment that can ever come on a human being in this world than for God, as I said, to flip the switch. To quit talking to you. To quit leaning on your life. To quit bringing conviction about your sins. Sometimes all you have to do is quit trying. Throw in the towel and say it's too much, too far, too hot, too slow, I can't, too, whatever. Just throw in the towel and estimate in human wisdom that this just isn't going to work. Give up. And God could flip the switch. And yet there have been people who said, I don't know if I can live this life. And they just walked off. God never did flip a switch with them. You don't know what he does. Now, by flip the switch, I mean leave you alone. But he said in John 3 and 2 there, he said, no man can do these miracles except God be with him. Now, in chapter 14, add chapter 14 to that. Chapter 14 and verse 10. Now, you're going to turn to a few verses of Scripture because I want you to see the purpose of these miracles. Why God did so many miracles in the ministry of Jesus. John 14. Believest thou that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth what? The works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. What do works do? They testify of his divinity. He's of God. You may not believe in me. You might have a problem with my lifestyle or my difference from all other men. Okay, believe what you see going on then. Believe the work because this is God. Accept me because God is using me, ministering power through me. At least do that. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 4. God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with different kinds of miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Who was bearing witness? God. God was in Christ. God was with Christ. The works were of God's works through Jesus. The words Jesus spoke, Jesus said, they're not my words, they're the Father's words. You may not believe me because you're not sure about me. Believe what I'm doing as a sign that God in heaven is doing this work through me. Again, back in John chapter 5, you don't have to turn to this. In verse 36, Jesus said, I have greater witness than that of John for the works which the Father hath given me to finish. The same works that I do bear witness to me that the Father hath sent me. That's John 5, 36. It is precisely for that reason that he is our Savior. God sent him, verified him with signs and wonders that could not be ignored or refuted. 
And the people who will never make it to heaven are the people who look at all of that with disregard, disinterest, walk away from it, and never pay attention to it. It's nothing. It's like saying, I don't care what you do, God. I don't care what you did through him. I don't want any part of him because he messes up my lifestyle. I have to change so much that I wouldn't be who I am if I walked with him. He's not worth the effort. He's not worth all the time and attention that I would have to give him to live like he said. And yet Jesus said, I have greater witness than of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. And amazingly, back in John 14, he said, the works that I do, in John 14, of the works that I do shall you do also. The works that I do shall you do also. And I wonder if we've ever seen anything done like he did through us or amongst us. And I asked myself, because he said, the works that I do shall you do also, didn't he? What do we need to do his works? He gave us himself. Who he is is in me. Unlimited. There's not part of him in here. He's in here this whole person. Christ dwells in your hearts by faith. Amen. What is it that he can't do? The only thing that can hinder Christ working in us is unbelief. Unbelief. Mark 6. He could do no mighty work because they didn't believe. Paul was able to heal a man one time because he perceived that he had faith to be healed in Acts 14. And there's a lot of people who really don't believe that God will ever use them. They don't ever expect this to happen. They've only read about it, but it's not a reality, and therefore nothing happens because of unbelief. Am I saying that's the problem in the church? Of course it is. We can talk faith, we can memorize faith and define faith, but it's the way we live. A thought came to me the other day. I'll just throw this out because of what it meant to me. You know what the great need in this church is? It's a humbling thing because it's for me to be holy. What does that mean? Because holiness is what brings forth all he is. Isn't that right? No more hindrances between you and God into heaven. Needs can be met because the conditions in a man's life are such that God will get all the glory and nobody wants the glory and you can, he can use you to lay hands on somebody, to prophesy to somebody, a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, the working of miracles, restoring a limb, a withered arm. There's no limit to what can happen amongst the Christian people in the church. And it should be. Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also. He said that in John 14, 12. In John 10. Would you turn to John 10 about the shepherd and the sheep? Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believe not the works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me. Does your Bible say that? Well, what testified to who Jesus was? The works, the miracles, the healings. Verse 32, 
Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? Verse 37. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. But when these Pharisees said, we don't want to believe you're who you say you are because you're so different from the way we want it to be that we're going to turn people away from you and try to dissuade people by saying that the power in this man is nothing more than the power of Beelzebub, the Lord of the flies, the devil. That's who's the working in Jesus. And Jesus came to the end of this message and he said, there's a lot of sins that people commit in life that be forgiven for, but there's one that you'll never be forgiven from. Not in this life, not in the one to come, and that's it. It's trashing the power that God gave to manifest his son and to prove who he was and to say the devil did it. That's why we got to learn to keep our mouth shut about a lot of things. Let's go on. Matthew 11 in verse 2, you remember the disciples of John came to Jesus and they said, are you he or should we seek somebody else? John the Baptist was in prison. He was about to lose his head. And Jesus so far has not subdued the Roman rule and established Israel as like the days of old, the power, because they thought when Messiah came, he would set up that power and that might and Israelites would be the rulers of all the world. Have such favor with God that they would dominate the world. And yet Jesus doesn't even go into the temple to preach except to run the money changers out. The crowd that follows him are nobodies. The established and intellectual and eloquent people, the scribes and the Pharisees or the Herodians and all the other people that were in the big thickest stuff, none of them knew who he was. They didn't follow him. Oh, they went out to see him occasionally to see what this babbler had to say. They didn't know who he was. Again, you know the story. They had to bribe Judas to tell them which one of them was Jesus. So he was nothing to them. He was only something to the ones to whom he sent Jesus. God could have touched the hearts of the big church first. He could have gone into established religion first. But like John the Baptist, nobody downtown Broadway knew who John the Baptist was either. In fact, if you want to hear John the Baptist, you've got to go look for him. He didn't even have his tape list. No itinerary, no flashing lights and smoke coming out of the stage. He's down by a river eating honey and grasshoppers, locusts. And when you go out there to hear him, he'll tell you you'd turn or burn. And when the Pharisees came out to see John the Baptist, <clears throat> sir, uh, what would you baptize? He said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You brood of vipers. You go show by your works that you repented, and then you come back and I'll baptize you. Well, that's no way to gain friends. But folks, I'm talking about something that God is doing, not what man wants man to be. I'm talking about what God did. God sent people into this world that had no fear of man who wasn't playing the games that man and religions of man play, but somebody who went and spoke, as it were, the words of God, minced no words, courted nobody's favor, 
did not care if they were ever popular or had nice clothes. They were willing to be nobodies so that God could be exalted. And God proved who these people were. When, when Jesus came on the scene, God proved to the whole world that this is the Messiah predicted because the power that is in him and on him that flows through him is undeniable and there is absolutely nothing that is sick or broken in this world that he did not fix. Nothing. He healed all of them. And if there was a question nobody could answer, he had wisdom beyond. It was God's way of proving to the world, this is Jesus. That's why his works were so important. Jesus said, believe the works. God was in Christ. And he was doing all of these things, reconciling the world to himself. So they said, John the Baptist in verse 11, Matthew 11, are you he or should we look for someone else in verse 3? What did Jesus say about who he was? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again the things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. Go tell John what you hear and see. Don't we sing it? Are you him? Jesus said, you've been here all day long and watching what's going on. You go tell John what you're seeing here. Now you've heard me and you've seen what I've done or what God has done through me. Go tell John. Go tell John. That's when he preached a little sermon about John. What do you think? John was some superhuman being that never had a problem with doubt. He's in jail. He's confined. He's never been confined in his whole life. He's being abused. They're going to cut his head off because he doesn't believe in remarriage. That's why he got his head cut off, because of the marriage thing. And he's battling some things in there. And so he said, go out there and make sure. Jesus said there's not a greater prophet than John. He was the one that got to tell the whole world. All the Old Testament was about this man here that I'm going to baptize. All the stories and all the pageantries of all the feast days and the holy convocations and all the types and all the things and the illustrations throughout Bibles and all of this points to Jesus Christ. And I'm not worthy to unlatch his shoes. And Jesus said, you are the one who introduced me to the world. And there's never been a greater prophet than John the Baptist. And Jesus came on the scene and the world has never been the same since. All because of miracles. The philosophers up in Greece could, through their philosophical ignorance, try and refute what this babbler said. But they could not refute what he did. You cannot explain by any technicality, any laboratory finding, or any research. You cannot explain how a dead person come back to life because you said, come back to life. How do they explain Lazarus? Three or four days, he surely began to stink. The decaying process in his body has taken place. If they had unwrapped him in their grave, they'd go, whoo! But Jesus said, Lazarus! Not because he was hard of hearing, but sometimes when he was anointed, he hollered, come forth. And pretty soon he came out. 
and he was every whit whole. Nobody could deny. How could you say this is not God? How could anyone say, oh, that wasn't God, that was the devil? The devil's the one that killed him. God's the one that gave him life. You got two kingdoms here. But the strong man, who's Jesus, has bound the one who had our goods and spoiled him. He fought him, faced him head on. Read Colossians 2. Go show John those things that you see and those things that you hear and tell him what great things the Lord has done. Listen to this verse in Acts chapter 2. This is Acts 2, 22. You men of Israel, hear these words. Peter's preaching. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. Let me read that again. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. How did God prove and testify of the genuineness of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God? Signs and wonders and miracles. Human beings are limited in this area as much as any area in existence. When a man dies, he is dead. There's no machine made that can make him live once his breath is gone. But Jesus spoke to death. Jesus could touch a dead man. He stopped the funeral at Nain one time, and you read the chronology of this thing. He was 30-some miles north and did some things, probably never slept, prayed all night. The next morning, his people follow him. He's walking down to a city called Nain. As he gets down there, here's a funeral procession. They carried the beer or the casket on their shoulders, and, and the mother was following. She was weeping and crying, and Jesus walked over to the casket, stopped it, says, wait, stop. And he said, young man, I say to thee, arise. And I put my pictures, what I would have done in it. If I was holding that casket and it started wiggling, I know it's humorous, but I mean, you can imagine if they didn't drop it, they put it down. And this boy, her only son, was raised up out of there. And he took the boy and took him back to his mother. How Jesus must have loved that woman. Her only son had died, but he did now because Jesus came. Young man, I say to thee, arise. And life came into the body. They can't do that anywhere in the world. There's no secret place in Switzerland they can do that. There's no tomato juice in, in South America where they treat patients. There's nothing like this. But God did it to show this is his power. This is what he does. It cannot be duplicated by anybody. And church, what Jesus did you can do also. Our problem is, like so many who followed him, we don't believe that. One father said, I believe, help my unbelief. I don't want to be hindered by a halting acceptance of what you're doing. I want to be able to say, yes, I can do what he said I can do. Now go to Mark 3. So when they said to Jesus, he hath a demon. He hath this power in him comes from the devil. 
Look at verse 22, Mark chapter 3 and verse 22. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath bells, but now the scribes were the teachers. They were the ones who interpreted the law. They were the students of, of Scripture. And they said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of devils casteth out devils. Jesus said it like this. It was a pretty simple argument. Well, that's not a very smart statement. If I, by the power of the devil, am casting out something I've already done, then obviously I'm fighting myself. Or that my kingdom is divided because we're fighting each other. But now, if, if I, by, as Luke said, by the finger of God, or by the power of God in Matthew 12, if I, by the power of God, cast out these demons, then you folks are in serious trouble because you are rejecting the one thing that God did to show who I was and what he's going to do and the truth that I'm going to bring. You rejected that and you said, it's all of the devil. There is no forgiveness for you, not in this life, not in the next life. That is the zenith awful judgment. That's the highest form of bad judgment that comes. It's over. You go ahead and live and breathe and have fun and ride your boat, but you're dead. You are a dead man. You cannot escape that. In verse 28, Matthew 3, Verily I say unto you, All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith they shall blaspheme. Speaking evil against. Blaspheming something. Being slanderous or something of that sort. Like saying, Thou fool is a blasphemy against a man. Now, you can be forgiven, he said. They shall blaspheme, but verse 29, but he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation because they said he hath an unclean spirit. Back in Matthew chapter 12, verse 31 Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. Whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. Whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the one to come. Is that a serious verse? He said, if he speaks a blasphemy against the Holy Ghost in verse 32, at the end of that verse, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world nor in the world to come. Is there a world to come? So this is the first world. There's another world. If that world is a world you go into unforgiven, then it's not heaven. It's not like you have to sweep floors in heaven because you blaspheme the Holy Ghost. You made it to heaven, but you, you know, you're not going to enjoy it much. That ain't what it says. He said that because they said he had an unclean spirit, Matthew says they shall not be forgiven, not in this life, not as the next life. I want to read to you what in Barnes notes, Albert Barnes was one of my favorite commentaries, quite a learned man. Anybody that writes commentaries on the whole Bible wrote his whole life. He said this. I want to quote from Barnes' notes. 
concerning verses 31 and 32. He said, in this place, Matthew 12, and in Mark 3, 28 to 30, Jesus states the awful nature of the sin of which they had been guilty. That sin was the sin against the Holy Ghost. It consisted in charging Jesus with being in league with the devil or accusing him with working his miracles, not by the spirit or power of God, but by the aid of the prince of devils. It was therefore a direct insult, abuse, or evil speaking against the Holy Ghost, the spirit by which Jesus worked his miracles. That this is what he intended by the sin at that time is clear from Mark 3 and 30. That is because they said he had an unclean spirit. All other sins, all speaking against the Savior himself, might be remitted. But this sin was clearly against the Holy One. It was alleging that the highest display of God's mercy and power were the work of the devil, and it argued, therefore, the highest depravity of mind. The sin of which he speaks is then clearly stated, it was accusing him of working miracles by the aid of the devil, thus dishonoring the Holy Ghost. That is a sin called the unpardonable sin. I've heard of it just like most people have. It's had very little bearing on the life of almost anybody. We still run our mouth. We still sometimes speak railing judgments against ministries. Sometimes we declare things with our mouth in judgment against other people that we shouldn't. Remember we were talking the other day about the tongue as an unruly evil. See if you can go for one week without it messing up. I didn't last a day. I had to sit at the table and thought, no, I just did it. I just said it again. That's how easy it is. We are good at this. We're unrestrained. We say things because we feel like we have a right to say things. We reach verdicts and judgments and have opinions about things we shouldn't even be talking about because we feel like we have a right to do that. And we don't even think about the fact that Jesus said in the same context, every idle word that man speaks of, he shall give an account of in the day of judgment that we say a whole lot of things that are going to come out against us that day and things that are going to be not on our side, but things that are going to be against us. Somebody asked the question then, well, what about people who have worked genuine miracles but didn't seem to have a genuine life? I've read stories. I tried to read a lot of stories about the 20th century when I was born in about ministries that were prominent before I was born. There were so many of them that were on the stage at the same time. There was Bram and Orr Roberts, and there was a fellow named Jack Cole, and then there was the fiery one, uh, Billy Sunday, but he was not into charismatic things so much. And then there was the, uh, the one that had the alcoholic problem, A.A. Allen. I mean, these men, though, when they were on stage ministering, things happened. People genuinely got healed. Eyes were recreated, miracles. Limbs were restored. They used to hang all the crutches on the walls of some of these churches whereby people who came with them were able to go home without them and never need them again. They were testimonies to what God was doing. And yet we hear the stories that some of these folks, I heard one once, hearsay. That's all it is. I can't prove it. But to make a point, I heard that a man came to the meeting. He was drinking. He had been drinking a lot, and he was about two-thirds shot. I mean, he was drunk. 
And he'd come like that before, they said. And all they did was when it came time, they pushed him out on the stage and he walked out there just as sober and in control as you could be. I mean, he walked out there and could preach marvelous messages. And people would cry and people would be saved. And the, the anointing would begin to flow. And have a prayer line and people would come, prayer line. Nobody said they ever smelled alcohol on his breath. They'd get healed. They'd go home well. Folks would get saved, genuinely born again. Life changed forever. The man walks off the stage, they said, and he was back the way he was. He had to be led out of there and put in the car and taken to his room. I don't know if that's true or not. That's the way I heard it. But what if it was true? How do you explain the fact that people got saved with a man like in that condition preaching? How could it be? Because it ain't men that save people. It has pleased God by the preaching of the word to save them that are lost. Those people sitting out there didn't know anything about this. He walked on the stage. He looked fine. He smelled fine when you're up close to him. And the word he preached, they believed it. And on the basis of believing the word, a man can be saved. He that believeth in his baptized shall be saved. People wanted to make pictures of men. He touched this hanky here, or he laid his hands on my head, and I haven't washed it in five years. <laughs> because we want to idolize somebody who superseded all the other somebodies in our life. Somebody we can brag on. Somebody we can boast of. Well, your tent was smaller than his tent. He had more healings than you did. You only got five crutches. We got crutches and wheelchairs. And in those days, they did boast about who had the biggest meetings and who was the greatest and who was most important. I guess nobody had more of a display of, of the word of knowledge and power than William Branham. I never saw him. I saw a movie of him. I don't doubt that. I read his life story. I don't know if I've ever read anybody's life story when I read his and cried as much as I cried reading his story, sobbing. I couldn't stop sobbing. I don't know why. I just did. This is as simple a man as a man could be. I don't guess he had an eighth grade education. Lost his wife and his son in the flood because he wouldn't obey the Lord. He came to the Lord, obeyed, humbled himself before God, and God took somebody that was a nobody and did things that the somebody's going, wow. It's just amazing. Had a vision once, an accident, I think it was in Sweden. Certain color dress here, a building there. And two years passed. One day in Sweden, a car wreck, an intersection, and some little boy was killed. And he happened to be there. And he said, you know something, I've seen this before. I've seen this. Would to God we had more of this. He said, I've seen this before. And then the anointing came. He got out of the car, walked over there, this little mangled up boy, laid hands on him, and there before everybody's eyes, he was put back together and he was healed. Now, see, I'm not going to speak against that. Well, some of his teaching was really bad. Then. It might have been, but I got my mouth shut. Judging, I'll leave that up to God. Now, I'm learning. Keep my mouth shut. It's just a little. 
little poquito or just a little bit. But I want to be a perfect man. You know what a perfect man is? One who can bridle his tongue. Leave it in your mouth instead of around somebody's neck. No, sir. Even a movie star paid a handsome salary, could memorize a sermon, quote the Bible in it, walk into a place where nobody knew who he was, preach that sermon, and people could legitimately be born again. We say, how could this be? Because the vessel isn't clean. But God honors his work. And about these other people, these ones that boasted of their big meetings and, and all of this kind of stuff and lived way beyond their means, you know, there's a lot of money in all of this. God's anointing, the Bible says his gifts are without repentance. When he bestows a power gift on somebody, it's there. He can certainly keep it from working. But if you've ever been anointed to preach, you'll be anointed, as far as I'm concerned, the rest of your life. I don't know how you'd do when you're 90 years old trying to be 40. But you don't have to be. You don't have to yell and holler. All you have to do is speak because it's not your abilities and your talents and your gestures and your illustrations. It's the anointing of his word. That's what does the work of God. God did this to Jesus. He bestowed upon him his power. Actually, God was in Christ. His spirit. There's one divine spirit. One divine spirit. That's God. He said he put his spirit in him. And he still remained God. How many of you know that God as spirit, not a spirit which is here or there, but God who is spirit is at all times everywhere. And that God is able to take of his very own person, his spirit, and put that in somebody. And that person can do whatever he wants done and that motivates him and guides him. He does his work through that person. That's what he did to Jesus. The Father was in Christ, yet he still remained the Father as Spirit. We're getting into something that's over my head, too. I'm just saying that in the bigness of God, he is able to take that which does the greater works and the power and accomplishments, and he puts that in whomsoever he will. When he puts it there, he put it there for a purpose. Not perfect vessels. Never been in a perfect vessel except Jesus. God has never used a perfect man to minister his word. All of them had to grow. All of them had to be saved. All of them had to correct themselves, every one of them. But it was God who was in Christ. It was God in you doing his works. And for the people to say, that ain't God. That raising the dead, that was the devil. The devil did that. That's one sin nobody wants to commit. You don't want to ever want to do that. You never want to say that. Nothing. Now, if somebody comes along and he's some prophet, he's some prophet of renown because his childhood was marked by a miraculous birth and so forth. And they come along and they begin to prophesy things, maybe even do a miracle. But they preach wrong. You don't have to follow that person. You don't have to talk about them either, but you don't have to follow them. 
Let me close with this. Deuteronomy 13, verse 1. You are the children here in Shelbyville Christian Assembly, you out there in electronic land. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder come to pass, whereof he spake unto you, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known. Let us serve them. You shall not hearken to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Because God will prove you like this. He wants to find out if your loyalty and submission and love is for him or following a movement. We've had too many people followers in our lifetime, too many movement followers, too many people who are depending on people, depending on an event, too many people whose hopes and dreams are all in a person. God uses persons. He uses people. He does his power that way. Most of the people in the end times, in the last days, that God will anoint will be rejected by the world. They will say the same thing about you all as they said about Jesus. Oh, that's a devil. That's just a devil. And if they come along and they do a wonder and a sign, the Antichrist will. And they do marvelous things, but their message is not what you've been taught. You don't have to respect that. You don't have to say a whole lot about it except from the pulpit. You may have to warn people. Or somebody in Florida who's wearing blue jeans and got tattoos all over him and hollers bam, bam, and people fall down and everybody's entertained. But his message is not clear and it's not good. And his activities are not good, and he's sporting himself with another woman and already divorced his wife. You don't have to have any regard for that. Amen. I'd walk away from that too. But you mark my words, the day will come in our lifetime in the fulfillment of all things that his church is going to rise up as a mature body, will be equipped and able to minister. In these last days, the church is going to be a glorious thing. And the people in it are going to love it. Amen. Bow your heads with me. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for all the things that you're doing that's drawing us closer to you. Things that make us evaluate ourselves, judge ourselves, cleanse ourselves, purge ourselves, getting ready for the return of Jesus. I ask you to bless these people in here tonight. Teach us, Lord, how to be quiet, how to be still, how to speak no word against anything until we absolutely know what we're saying and that it's okay. Otherwise, God, help us to speak that which edifies. This is a serious word that you have here, Lord, about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. May we not forget it. May we guard our mouths and our tongues and not be judged in this life for such foolish things. Bless us and keep us and continue to lead us, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.